You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning, everybody. If we haven't met before, uh, my name is Matt, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Liberty Church. Good to have you with us uh, for whatever reason you find yourself here today. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, continuing on this series that we've been in for a couple months now. We're in Exodus, the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of 18 today. Uh, Those black hardcover Bible under your seat that Elise mentioned a moment ago, page 59 is where you can find uh, today's text in most of those. And if the past couple weeks for us, we've been in the heart of of the Old Testament. This morning, we come to a hinge, a hinge. Uh, The end of chapter 17 and Exodus chapter 18 are really the hinge point of the book of Exodus. The first half or so, if you've been with us for this series over the past couple months, we've been recounting, uh, the book has been recounting the Exodus event itself, how God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. The second half which we have less time to, to cover uh, in, the, in the weeks ahead, but we're going to jump into it next week. The second half is going to recount how God gave his law through Moses to his people. So you can think about it this way. The first half of Exodus is about what Israel is freed from. The second half of Exodus is about what Israel is freed for. So freed from slavery, Israel is freed for worship. Freed from their bondage, from oppression, they are freed for faithfulness. They are free to serve the one true God and to walk in his ways. And the hinge between these two halves of the book of Exodus offers us this morning little snapshots of how Israel is going to interact with other nations of the earth. And also how, as now the freed people of God, they still have an ongoing need to be led and what that leadership is going to look like. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady till the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. 
Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. Okay, it's like 15 times in this text. There's another one. Told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Verse 13, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? What you, why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the, pe the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Our Father, our God, we ask now that you would open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as these scriptures have been read and as your word is now proclaimed, that, you, that we would hear what you are saying to us today. And we pray that through Jesus and in his name. Amen. So two things uh, for us to focus on in this passage, this hinge passage today, decision and delegation, decision and delegation, decision, God's deliverance leads the people of the world to a decision point. And we see that play out in this text. And then delegation, delivered people still need to be led and cared for. And that ministry is meant to be delegated, shared among the, the people. So first, let's talk about decision. Uh, the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18 can appear like they're completely unrelated, like they have nothing to do with each other. It's one of the places in the Bible where the chapter divisions and the verse divisions that weren't part of the original text but were added later can actually do us a disservice. Uh, there are a ton of parallels that we're supposed to see between Israel's interactions with the Amalekites and their subsequent interaction with Jethro. 
So in chapter 17, the Amalekites, it says, come and attack. They came and attacked. In chapter 18, it says, Jethro came and greeted. Chapter 17, Moses sits down on a stone during this battle. Chapter 18, he sits down to judge. Both the battle in chapter 17 and then judging the people in chapter 18 are said to happen the next day. It's anticipated. It said, tomorrow this will happen. The next day it will happen. Both the battle and judging the people last the whole day from morning till evening, from the rising of the sun till it goes down. In both interactions, a group of Israelites are chosen for a specific significant task. They're chosen to do some significant work. And in both chapter 17 and chapter 18, Moses is tired. He needs help. These parallels are not coincidental. We're meant to hold these two accounts together. And that's because the biggest common thread between them is that they both preview the way people from other nations are going to respond to the deliverance of God's people. God's deliverance, in other words, brings the people of the world to a decision point and they will choose either war or worship. War or worship. Some will go to war and they'll fight against the people of God. They'll fight against what God is doing in the world. Others will worship. Others will see and believe and thereby be swept up into the work that God is doing. And each group, each nation, each individual must decide. So the Amalekites and Jethro are these little vignettes that preview what is to come. We're going to find out, we see like in preview form in this text, that God's deliverance of his people means both judgment on the nations and salvation for the nations. Judgment on the nations and salvation for the nations. Those who choose war are going to find themselves subject to God's judgment. But those who choose worship will experience his salvation. The first part here, the end of chapter 17, the Amalekites' decision, as we read, is war. The Amalekites' decision is war. Uh, We read back in the book of Genesis that Amalek was a grandson of Esau. And so this, this old sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau, it's now grown up into a battle between armies of their descendants. Unprovoked, they come and they attack Israel. And it's not clear if this is Amalekite land. It probably is not their land. But the Amalekites are nonetheless threatened by by Israel being present there. Moses appoints Joshua to lead the army. It's the first time we hear the name Joshua in the book of Exodus. We as the readers don't know it yet, but, but he's being prepared to lead the people into the promised land after Moses dies. Also for the first time here, we see that Israel has to take up arms and fight. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, when they were on the shores of the Red Sea, God through Moses said to them, all you have to do, Israel, is to be silent. Just be quiet and watch the deliverance that God is going to work for you. Here, they have to take a more active role. They have to actually fight themselves. But make no mistake, God is the one still fighting for them. And from the top of this this nearby hill, whenever Moses raises up his hands with the staff in them above his head, Israel prevails. When he lowers it, when he gets tired and his hands come down, Amalek prevails. That's a picture of God bringing judgment. The staff that Moses has in his hand here, that staff has been used to deliver Israel, but it's also been used to judge Egypt. It's become this tangible instrument of both God's deliverance of his people and his judgment against those who oppose them. And as we read, when when God grants victory to Israel in this battle, 
He pronounces judgment on the Amalekites. He's going to blot out their memory from under heaven. He's going to fight against them from generation to generation. So the Amalekites choose war. Their decision is war, and thereby they experience judgment. They experience judgment. On the other hand, in chapter 18, beginning of chapter 18, Jethro's decision is worship. It's worship. Jethro, as it says like 15 times, is Moses' father-in-law. Father-in-law, in case you didn't get that. It's, it's in there all the time. He's his father-in-law. Uh, if you remember from early on in our series, after Moses fled from Egypt, he ended up meeting and marrying one of Jethro's daughters, a woman named Zipporah. And he then spent the next 40 years in close proximity to Jethro. He actually was a shepherd tending some of Jethro's sheep for 40 years. Here in Exodus 18, after what was probably about an 18-month absence, they are reunited. And as we read, Moses is also reunited with his wife and his two sons. But if you noticed, they're like a footnote in this text. It says wife and kids, and they get a little mention, a little reminder of what their names mean. But like the focus of this text is clearly not on his wife and his kids, even though it's a reunion with them too. The focus is on Jethro. Why? Because this is a text about how people from other nations respond to God's deliverance. And Jethro is from another nation. Jethro is a Midianite, not an Israelite. Jethro, as it says in in verse 1, is a priest. We've known that about him from earlier in the book of Exodus, but we've never really been sure, it's never really been clear what God or gods he is a priest for. So we can't say with absolute certainty that, that this moment in Exodus 18 is the moment of Jethro's conversion. What we can say is that when Jethro hears about what God has done, his response is worship. His response is worship. He rejoices, verse 9. He says in verse 10, Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh. Right? The one true God. And he continues in verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. The, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, they didn't get it. The Amalekites, they didn't get it. And so they experienced the judgment of God because they chose war. Jethro, the Midianite, gets it. God's deliverance of his people has, be- has, has led to Jethro becoming a worshiper. And it's kind of remarkable. By, by verse 12, he's now sitting down for a sacrificial meal with Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel. Jethro chooses worship and he finds himself swept up into God's saving work. So here's what we see in this hinge moment of the book of Exodus. God is a global God. God is a global God. He's not a tribal deity His deliverance of Israel was not this private, tribal kind of affair, nor was it just about the salvation of one nation. From the moment that God chose to bless Abraham and his descendants, that was always for the sake of all nations. That's the Genesis 12 promise. It says, in you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth, not just your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Israel was delivered from their slavery in Egypt in order to be a light to the nations. And though there's so much more yet to come in Scripture about what that means and about how that's going to happen, even at this moment, in Israel's infancy as a nation, we're seeing that God's reach and God's purposes are so much broader than just Israel. It's a global God. It's not always known for this, but the book of Exodus gives us some really incredible early views of God's global mission. God's global mission, the global scope of the saving work that that God does. As God's people experience deliverance, they are meant to display 
They are meant to proclaim God to the world. They're meant to do that to all the nations of the earth. And this was already explicit in the Old Testament, all the way back from that promise in Genesis 12. But it becomes way clearer, way more explicit in the New Testament. When Jesus Christ came into the world, and when he died on a cross, when he was raised up from the dead, he broke down the dividing walls of hostility that separate people from people and nation from nation. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 to a bunch of non-Israelites, to a bunch of people that did not descend from Abraham. Once you were alienated from Israel. Once you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus himself goes on to say in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations, all nations. This is God's mission, which has become our mission as followers of Jesus. Mission here at Liberty Church is one of our nine rhythms of grace, one of the regular habits and pursuits of the Christian life that we're always meant to be pursuing, we're meant to running after. Mission, when we say that, we mean both showing and telling the good news of Jesus. And whether that's on your street, that's on your block where you live, or whether that's in some faraway place, that mission is a global mission. It's meant for all the peoples of the earth. We see here in Exodus 17 and 18 that God's deliverance will bring the world to a decision point. And our pursuit of mission does the very same thing. Our pursuit of mission will elicit responses of both war and worship from the very people that we interact with. Our pursuit of mission can result in, will result in judgment for some and salvation for others. And I say that to you this morning to to calibrate our expectations, to calibrate our expectations. If all we expect when we pursue mission, if all we expect is appreciation and warm receptions and people responding with worship, we're going to be really disillusioned when some people respond with war. Most of us know that. If you in your life have have attempted in, in really any way to share the good news of Jesus with other people, my bet is that you've experienced some kind of rejection. Some of us maybe have experienced so much rejection or experienced such painful forms of rejection that maybe this morning where you find yourself is you've just all but given up on mission. Like, I know we're supposed to do that, but like, I'm just not going to do that anymore. It's too hard. I just want to invite you this morning to consider, friends, that, that that rejection is so much bigger than you. And so much of the time is not personal. It's not personal. Now, now how we pursue mission matters a lot. The, the posture that we take in mission matters. The words that we use matter. We should labor to share Jesus in the most faithful and effective ways we possibly can. We should do it with gentleness and respect and all the other ways we're called to do it in Scripture. But when people respond with the rejection, most, most of the time it has nothing to do with you. When people reject that, most of the time it has nothing to do with you. Most of the time, it's simply because God's deliverance is always bringing people to a decision point and some people tragically choose war. Here's the good news. Other people choose worship. Others choose worship. They always have. They always have. And until Jesus comes again, some people, many people will continue to choose worship. Jethro's response here is amazing. It's amazing because it's not like the Midianites are known for being friends of Israel. 
It's not like that group of people is like, yep, they were always tight with Israel. It always went well from this moment on. Quite the opposite. The Midianites, most of the time they show up in the Bible, are, they show up as enemies to the people of God. Same thing is true with Rahab, this woman who lives in Jericho, who the people of God, the Israelites, will meet about 40 years after this moment. The same thing is true in Ruth, the book of Ruth, and the woman named Ruth, who was a Moabitess. She was from Moab. Like Midian, Jericho, Moab, they are other enemies of Israel. But when Rahab and Ruth respond to God's deliverance with worship, when they choose worship instead of war, they are swept up into God's saving work to the point that they find themselves in the genealogy of Jesus. These former enemies become mothers of Jesus. In this month of prayer for the persecuted church, let that, let that pour some gasoline on the fire of your prayer life. Let that fuel your prayer life for the persecuted to be sure, for those who experience persecution, but also for the persecutors, for the enemies of God. Pray that they would stop choosing war and that they would choose worship instead. The history of God's redemption is filled with former enemies who now choose worship. Such were some of us. Tonight, actually, in in Glenside, one of our sister churches, Bridge Community Church, uh, is hosting the first ever Liberty Communion Global Gathering. It's a chance for people from the various Liberty Churches to get together, to celebrate the partnerships globally that we have, uh, to celebrate the team that went to Eswatini this past summer from a bunch of different Liberty Churches, and to just keep praying and being encouraged about God's global mission and the ways we get to participate in and be a part of that. If you, if you don't have plans for your Sunday night, we totally encourage you to make the drive down to Glenside uh, and do that and be part of that. But, but that's why, this is all why we do that. This is why we care about God's global mission. This is why we try to see men and women raised up and we pray for people to be raised up to to go, to be part of it. Because of the rejection, because some people tragically choose war, we are going to be tempted to stop pursuing mission. It's hard. It's painful. And maybe you've thought this like I have. If some people are going to choose war and thereby experience God's judgment, maybe it's just better if we just stop Maybe let's just let God do whatever it is he's going to do and let him find just some other way to do it and not ourselves take up the mission. The Apostle Paul seemed to wrestle with that very thought at different times in his ministry, but his conclusion was never to stop. was never to stop. He writes in 2 Corinthians 2, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among both those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He says, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It is a hard reality that our mission will elicit these responses of both war and worship. It's weighty, rightfully weighty, that our mission will lead to both judgment and salvation. But here's the thing, church. If we are not willing to be the aroma of death to those who are perishing, we will never be the aroma of life to those who are being saved. They they go together. We will never be the aroma of life to those who are being saved if we're not willing to also be the aroma of death to those who are perishing. Our role is to be the aroma. It's to be the aroma. It's to be the delivered people of God we are and to faithfully pursue the mission that, that we've been given. Our role, whether that's to the end of your street or to the ends of the earth, is to live in ways which display God's deliverance and to speak the good news of God's deliverance and to serve others in light of God's deliverance. And as we see from the rest of today's text, this really is our 
collectively, it's our role. It's not just the role of one or two primary leaders. It's something that's meant to be shared among the people of God. So second, let's talk about delegation. Delegation. God's deliverance doesn't only bring the world to a decision point. It also creates this need for ongoing ministry. Think about it this way. Delivered people still need direction. Do we not? We, we, once we enter the kingdom of God by trusting in Jesus, we very much still need to be cared for and shepherded and corrected and discipled. What we see in Exodus 18 is that this ministry is meant to be delegated, shared among the people. Jethro has some really insightful and necessary counsel from Moses in the second half of chapter 18. After observing what just sounds like an awful day, and a completely overwhelming, completely exhausting kind of day, Jethro says, Moses, what are you doing? What are you doing, Moses? This is not good. This is not sustainable. The weight that you're taking on here, it's too heavy. It's too heavy. You can't do this on your own. We've seen in Exodus that you know, Moses has a, a unique role. He is the mediator between God and the people. He's the one that God is, is speaking to directly. He's the one who carries the staff. He's the, one, he's the human agent of God's deliverance. And yet, as we see here, even so, he's only human. He's only human. He is limited. He gets tired. He gets weary. He has to sit down. Moreover, we read here, he's not the only leader among the people. There, he's not the only one qualified to carry both significant responsibility and significant authority among the people of God. And so on Jethro's counsel, Moses looks for others. He looks for men to become leaders or judges over groups of tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. As we read there, there's a real intentionality to this. They have to be qualified to do that. They have to be qualified men. As verse 21 spells out, they have to be able they have to be capable and, and skilled to do that work. They have to be pious. They have to fear God. In other words, before anyone should submit to their leadership and follow them and the decisions that they're going to make, they first have to submit themselves to God and follow him. They have to be trustworthy. They can be counted on to handle responsibility, to handle the authority that they're going to have. And they have to be men of integrity. They have to hate bribes. They're not for sale. They're not prone to partiality or dishonesty or trying to get wealthy off of the position that they have. And none of this is tangential to the unique role Moses has. This is actually what frees Moses up to do what he must do. Jethro starts speaking to that in verse 19. Moses needs to keep representing the people before God in the way that only he can. Moses needs to keep teaching the people God's statutes and God's laws. He's about to go up in the near future uh, on Mount Sinai for 40 days. The people still need to be led, very much so, during that time. So sometimes we hear the word delegation and we think, yeah, the leaders in charge just don't do anything and they make all the worker bees underneath them do all the hard work. They get to go play golf. You know, they get to let, do whatever their hobby is. We hear the word delegation and it has this connotation of like abdication from real work. But this is Moses not abdicating, this is Moses empowering other people for ministry. Delivered people still need direction, and that ministry is meant to be delegated among the people. 
This text is setting the stage for future leaders among the people of God. Setting the stage for the kings over God's people that will come later. The priesthood, the priests that will come later. Uh, The chiefs of different tribes and clans. And even further down the road than that, this is setting the stage for the church that will one day be established by Jesus. People who are delivered by Jesus from their sin still need direction. Like Israel, we we still need to be shepherded and cared for and corrected and discipled. And so as the early church begins to take shape in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, the apostles, the 12 apostles, they appoint seven others to serve in what will eventually become known as the office of deacon. And they do that not because the apostles are above that kind of work that the deacons are going to do, not because they're better than deacons or, or that you know, certain kinds of work is beneath them. They do that so they can focus on the work they're uniquely called to do, which it says in Acts chapter 6 is prayer and the ministry of the word of God. Fast forward some more years from there, and as the apostle Paul is sharing the good news of Jesus around the Mediterranean, and as people are coming to faith in Jesus, as new churches are being planted, those churches need leadership. And so Paul lays out qualifications for elders and for deacons in places like 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. If you get a chance to read those in this next week or so, you'll find a lot of overlap between those qualifications in the New Testament for elders and deacons and the qualifications that Jethro gives here in Exodus 18. But especially in the church, especially in the church, the delegation of ministry does not stop there. And so Paul goes on to write in Ephesians chapter 4, That God gives these leaders, he gives some, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To do all the ministry themselves? No, Paul writes, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Men and women, who is meant to do the work of ministry? You are. Thank you. We got one. We got one person that's in. You are. You are. And and maybe that's the first time you're ever hearing this idea. Maybe it's just a reminder that we need often. But you are the saints, the people who have been delivered by Jesus. It's not just the the paid pastors or a few leaders that do the work of ministry. Under the guidance of qualified leaders, ministry is meant to be shared among all of the people of God. This is sometimes referred to as the priesthood of believers. Priesthood of believers. That phrase comes from the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter comes from the Apostle John's words in Revelation. Uh, There are priests, there are leaders that have unique roles, but there is also a priesthood of all believers. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you owning your responsibility to do the work of ministry? Are you owning your responsibility to do the work of ministry? If you have trusted in Jesus for your deliverance, you have responsibility to build up the church. You have a responsibility to use the gifts that you have been given to bless and to serve other people. At Liberty, we are, we are incredibly blessed with some really godly, really capable leaders. There's an incredible plurality of elders and deacons and staff members who give leadership in unique ways to the life of our church and the people of our church. But those men and women who serve as elders and deacons and staff members here can't do all the ministry. Some of us have tried and it doesn't go well. It goes really poorly. It's too heavy. Anyone that ever sits in any one of those chairs in our church is just a human being. Just a human being. Delivered people still need direction. Are you owning your part of that? 
Are you owning your part of that? I got to reflect on that a bunch this week, and I'm really grateful to be able to say, a lot of you are. A lot of you are. A lot of you, for many years now, have been finding ways to use your time and your talents to to really bless other people, to serve a ton of other people, and to do that both inside the walls of our church and outside the walls of our church. But for any of you who maybe aren't, and as you take stock of that question this morning, you say, no, I'm not really owning that responsibility right now. Even for those of you who are, this is something that we need to be reminded of all the time. The work of ministry is always meant to be shared among all the people of God. And by the work of ministry, I'm not just talking about occupying a volunteer role. That's a huge part of it. It's a huge part of it. And I don't want to miss the opportunity to say on behalf of the elders and deacons and staff of our church, I'm hugely thankful to all of you who, who take one or more of those volunteer roles that make things happen around here. Really thankful for that. But in Ephesians 4, Paul isn't talking about making sure our volunteer roles are fully staffed. He's writing about attaining to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. He's talking about people's spiritual maturity. He's talking about protecting people from being tossed around like children by all these kinds of false teachings. He's talking about speaking the truth in love. He's talking about building up the church. I would say to you this morning, brothers and sisters in Jesus, saints of God, step into that. Step into that. This perspective will give incredible meaning to the formal structured volunteer roles that we have. You don't just set up chairs on a Sunday morning. You don't just serve coffee as a task. You set up chairs and you make coffee to propel the unity of faith, to bring the saints of God together so that we might actually live that out together in community. You don't just babysit some kids in a classroom for an hour. You are spurring young image bearers of God into maturity in Christ. That's what you're doing when you serve in that role. Those roles matter. This gives incredible meaning to it. At the same time, as a saint, we are called into the kind of life-on-life relational ministry that goes far beyond what pastors or elders or deacons or staff members can do. And so if you're struggling to figure out what that should look like in your life, what, what does it mean for me to own the work of ministry? If you're struggling with that question, if, you, if you're wanting to be more equipped to do the work of ministry, or if this is just a brand new idea and you've just kind of always assumed, well, that's what we pay pastors for. They do the ministry. We just show up. I, I want to encourage you to let us help you figure that out if you're wrestling with any of those things. Talk that out with people in your Bible study group. Ask the leaders that we do have here at our church for the equipping you need. I can promise you we'll disappoint you sometimes. I can promise you we won't meet you exactly where you are at any given moment, but I want you to hear from me this morning. We are committed to that. We are committed to equip you to do the work of ministry that you all, that we all are called to do. Preparing for this sermon, one of the things that stood out is how many people tried to turn Exodus chapter 18 into a management book. So from Jethro's advice, we can certainly draw out some really good principles of organizational leadership, how to manage a large group of people, uh, the importance of delegation, and all of that, all those principles are fine and good. I just would remind you this morning, church, this is not a business book. This is the story of your salvation. This is the story of your deliverance. And the incredible thing is that you and I have a role to play in it. We have a role to play in it. Global mission. We have a role to play in that. Shared ministry. You have significant work to do, not just to pull off worship services and programs, but to advance the kingdom of God. God's deliverance 
leads the people of the world to a decision point, and you, saints, are the aroma of Christ. You are the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. Likewise, God's deliverance, God's delivered people still need to be cared for and discipled. Some measure of that work is yours to do. And you've been called to this, not first and foremost by me, by the elders of this church, but by the author and perfecter of your salvation himself. See, as a, as a mediator for Israel in Exodus, Moses stretched out his hands in judgment of the people who chose war. But centuries later on another hill, our mediator, the mediator, Jesus Christ, would stretch out his hands not to dispense judgment, but to receive our judgment upon himself. Which means that instead of choosing war, we get to choose worship. Instead of God's judgment on us, we not only get to experience God's salvation, we get to take up his mission so that a lot of other people can experience his salvation too. It's fitting that in this hinge passage, the last thing before the giving of the law, the the climax of the Exodus event is a meal. It's a meal. A Midianite, someone from another nation, sits down with Moses and the elders of Israel. And in this multinational meal, they feast together in celebration of God's deliverance. Church, the climax of our exodus is also a meal to which all the nations of the earth are invited. To which all the nations of the earth are invited. When Jesus comes again, when you and I are finally free from all of the effects of sin in our hearts and in this world, at what the Bible calls the wedding supper of the Lamb, we will gather with people from every tongue and tribe and nation and we will feast together in celebration of God's deliverance. Amen. Until that day, until that day, as God's delivered people, take up the ministry that Jesus has given you to do. Let us be the aroma of Christ. Let our lives, let your life and your words lead the people of this world to a decision. And may they choose worship. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, our God, you have given us the unbelievable message of the good news of Jesus Christ. You have given us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility that once kept us separate from one another. We can, by faith in the finished work of Jesus, enter into your kingdom and be part of that meal one day at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We long for that day. We ask this morning that you would empower us today, even as we have been delivered through Jesus, that we would be his people carrying out his mission in this world. Would you give us the grace that we need to carry that on? Would you give us the grace we need to take up the part of ministry, the the measure of ministry that is ours to do? Would you help us to pursue faithfulness in that as, as as a local expression of your body, as your church in this world? Pray that all Jesus in your name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.